Okay, it's on green now. Can can I preach now? <laughs> All right. So uh, I I want to also say thank you to Chuck and to Mike uh, for the faithful job that you did in my absence. It is a joy to ba- be back, and it's also a comfort to know uh, that in my absence uh, the word is handled well. We did have one friend of mine from the seminary, Brian Biedebach, came up, and and that was a treat as well. Uh, but um, I hope that all of you appreciate how privileged you are, uh, because one of the things that I do as we're gone is we tend to go and listen to other preachers and and go to other churches, and I hope you recognize the privilege it is uh, to be in a place where the Word of God is taught and proclaimed, and uh, it is, instead of talking about the Bible, you actually go through the Bible, and so... Uh, I was really blessed to listen to both of you and your faithful expositions, and hopefully we will be able to do the same thing this morning. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 6. We're looking this morning at the results of rejecting the gospel. If you're looking for a title, the results of rejection or the results of rejecting the gospel is is really, I think, the focus of the text in Mark 6, verses 14 through 29 that we'll be looking at this morning. Now, we already studied in the past in Mark's gospel, we already studied the parable of the soils where Jesus talked about a plurality of ways that people will respond to the gospel, Right? That some will respond with complete disinterest and disaffection. The, they'll hear the word and it'll be like seed landing on the, the hard-packed ground on the road. And the birds come and eat it up and it's just gone. It has no impact whatsoever. But he's also instructing his disciples in that parable that there are three positive ways that people will respond. Some will be like the... Uh, uh, the seed that is sown amongst the weeds. It'll be evergreen but never fruitful. It'll be always uh, evident that it's growing there a little bit, but there's no real fruit. Now, those are the people that hear the Word and respond positively but never truly commit themselves to Christ. And I think the church uh, is always going to be characterized by having people like that in it. People who uh, agree with the truths of Scripture, they want to be identified with Christ, but coming all the way to true repentance and faith, making an absolute commitment and dedicating themselves from that point on to living for Christ just isn't there. And Jesus tells his disciples there will be people like that. In fact, I think the parable of the wheat and the tares ultimately explains when Jesus says you don't go and rip out the tares, you're going to pull up some of the wheat. And how do you know until it actually comes to head which is genuine and which is not genuine? So what that means is we're not supposed to be running around through the church lifting up... This is the way Spurgeon used to describe it. You're not supposed to be going around behind people and lifting up their shirt to see if they have E for elect stamped on their back. Right? You just judge them by their fruits and you take them at their word and then you respond biblically to whatever happens. Jesus also said that there would be those who would respond very positively and they take off like a weed and they grow super fast straight up and they look more healthy than all the other members in the church for a while and then when a real test comes, then they leave because they have no depth of soil. There will be people that will respond positively 
make a profession of faith, come forward. You'll see even, even change and assent, a true agreement with the facts and commitment to it. But it's not a commitment from the heart. It's not a total commitment no matter what. When the, when the price gets too high, when persecution hits, or the cost of being obedient is, whoa, i got to give up that ungodly relationship or that ungodly behavior or practice. I've got to take this stand for Scripture? No way. No way. My career, my kids, my family, my whatever is too important to me. That is above God in my, in my thinking, and so I'm, I'm going to abandon it. And that's apostasy, and Jesus warned of that. He said, of the four soils, only one is true, and that's the one that produces fruit, 30, 60, 100-fold. You will know them by their fruit. That's, that's Jesus summarizing the outcome of preaching the gospel. When we look at Mark 6 now, though, we are really, this is a wedged narrative between the sending of the twelve, the two narratives with regard to the sending of the twelve. The text we looked at last time, uh, right before I headed off to vacation, was John, or excuse me, was Mark 6, verses 7 to 13. Uh, I'm not going to walk through all of this, just to point out two quick facts. Notice in verse 7, Jesus summons the twelve and begins to send them out in pairs and gives them authority over unclean spirits and gives them specific instructions on how to conduct themselves and where to go in this preaching ministry. You slip down to verse 12 and you see they went out, they preached that men should repent and they were casting out many demons, anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. So what Jesus has just done as he gets to the high point of his earthly ministry and his preaching and the teaching and his miracles is he has just multiplied by six the number of locations that essentially, to an extent, he can be in and his message can go out from and the miracles that he's doing can be done as a testimony to the fact that the kingdom has come. So he has just added six teams of two to his own personal work. So now seven different locations at the same time, either he or a pair of his disciples are out preaching the gospel, calling people to repentance and doing miracles to confirm that uh, this is his ministry and it is from God. Now, skip down to verse 30. We pick up here the verse after the text we're going to study this morning, and you'll notice that Mark is going to run right back to the apostles, the twelve, coming back. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he says, come away by yourselves, and and then the rest of the narrative we'll study next time. Notice there is no testimony as to what happened during those uh, six uh, teams ministries. It's just summarized that, hey, we went out and we did all the miracles and we preached just like you told us to preach. In between there is our text. And the text that we're going to look at this morning, in a sense, isn't even a narrative like what you would expect in a history book or a biography of what took place specifically in that window. There's a little bit about that. But then there's a flashback explaining what happened to John the Baptist. Now, why is that? Because Mark's not trying to write us a history book. Mark is presenting to us the good news about Jesus Christ. 
And he's doing it not so much by telling us what Jesus said, but showing us by recording for us what Jesus did and the things that happened. So as this story plays out, it's not intended to be a specific chronological order. It's intended to keep pointing us to Christ, to keep showing us who he is as the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who came to lay his life down for us so that we might be reconciled to God. Now, in this little window between Jesus sending out the twelve and then them coming back and reporting in, we have a narrative that tells us what things were happening as a result of Jesus' preaching and as a result now of the multiplication of his ministry, of his message going forth, and the miracles being done. Think about it. Jesus giving the authority to these 12 guys to do miracles shows you that he is way beyond any of the prophets in the Old Testament. What prophet in the Old Testament empowered other prophets who were his followers to do miracles. Elijah handed his mantle over after he left. And he said to Elisha, well, <laughs> here it is. I'm hopping in a fiery chariot and I'm going home early because I'm, I'm out of here. And, uh, you know, Elisha, God will decide whether or not he's going to give you my powers or not. Uh, that's not for me to decide. See ya. Now, Elisha is able to do miracles. God does transition that, that miraculous ability to speak and act for God to Elisha. But it wasn't Elisha who gave him that power. When Moses is taken on his walk uh, at the end of his days, right before the nation of Israel goes into the promised land, uh, Moses, <laughs> under God's instruction, turns over to Joshua that he's now going to lead the people into the promised land, but none of the signs and the wonders and the miracles that Moses did did he empower or entrust to Joshua. So when Jesus grants the authority to his disciples to do miracles, and by the way, keep in mind, one of those twelve was Judas who was not a believer. One of those 12 who went out and spoke for Jesus and did miracles for Jesus in this ministry, in this context, one of them wasn't even a believer. That shows you the power of Christ, the authority of Christ, the uniqueness of Him and of His person. Up to this point, you remember the religious leaders are accusing him of doing miracles by the powers of the forces of darkness, by the powers of, of the wicked one himself, right? And Jesus shows them the, the foolishness and, and a ridiculous idea that that is. Because he did so many miracles, because they were all absolute and, and definitive miracles, undeniable miracles, that with what's happening, you just have to say, well, this is supernatural. This is God at work in some way. Well, now, he sends the twelve out two by two, and they are doing miracles as well, and they are preaching the same message. And what I want to show you this morning as we look at verses 14 to 29, I want you to see the results of the faithful preaching of the gospel 
and the way that it does not always result in repentance and faith, many times it results in rejection, and I want you to see what rejection looks like, okay? There are two things I want to show you. Two divinely ordained results of rejecting the faithful proclamation of the gospel that you're going to see here. The first is conviction and confusion. The second is conviction and condemnation. The faithful proclamation of the gospel does result in some people coming to repentance and faith. It does result in some people making a positive response to it, and like we learned in the parable of the soils, in time fading away, or being evergreen but never fruitful, but always positive. But for the majority of people, it will result in conviction. But for some, it's conviction that leads to confusion. And for others, it's conviction that leads to condemnation. And we're going to take a look at both of those as we walk through the text this morning. And what I really hope that you see from this, I hope you see two things. Number one, I hope you see that it should not surprise any of us that when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you stand for God in a lost and a sin-cursed and fallen world, you should not be surprised to see people respond when they are convicted by the truth and the obvious evidence that God's Word is true. You should not be surprised to see people confused about how to handle it and, and recognizing that this has to be supernatural, this has to be true, this has to be from God, but they don't actually come to saving faith. They just, they just find a way to, to go, oh yeah, 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 and then move on with their lives. And at the same time, it should not surprise you that sometimes people, when they hear the truth, recognize it as the truth, are convicted by the truth, and yet respond in such a negative way that all they do is accumulate all the more condemnation for themselves. And as they accumulate that condemnation, those who speak for God, those who point to Christ, those who share the truth, are often persecuted for the, for the testimony that they bear and the stand that they take. And you should not be surprised by this. You see this happen to Christ. You see this happen to His apostles. You see this happen in the text in front of us to John the Baptist. And you go through the Old Testament... Or as when we close our message this morning, when you get to Hebrews chapter 11 in the end of the Faith Hall of Fame, you see that this is traditionally the way the world has always responded to God's spokesman. The world hears the truth and recognizes that it is true. The world sees the evidences in this context of the ministry of Jesus Christ and the miracles not only He does, but at this point, His disciples in pairs are doing, and it's undeniable evidence that Christ has come from God. And you would think that it would result in the whole nation coming to repentance and faith. How many times have you heard somebody say, or maybe even thought in your own heart, I remember as a young man thinking this, and when I say young man, I mean like a teenager, I'm thinking this, how could people see those miracles and not believe? 
I would have believed if I saw a Lord. How, how, how rebellious and hateful must those people have been that, that were led out of Egypt in bondage and they saw the, the plagues. How could they not trust God when they get to the Red Sea and just be looking for God to do a miracle? How can they say, oh, is it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us here? And then when they see the Red Sea parted, they get to the edge of the promised land and go, oh, there's giants, we'll never make it. How can these people forget that God just, without lifting a finger, defeated the greatest and most powerful army on the earth and you think he can't take care of the Canaanites? Really? How can people be so unbelieving? I'll tell you why. Because apart from the grace of God granting repentance and faith to you and your heart, you wouldn't believe either. It has never been about evidence. You have all the evidence that you need right here and right here. Romans 1. The wrath of God is being continually revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and, uh, and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their own unrighteousness. Because what is uh, evident about God has been made evident within us. We all know within ourselves that there is a God and we stand before Him accountable for every sin we've ever committed. We all know that. The whole world knows that. Now, when you as a preacher, when you as a Christian begin to point to a person and to their sin and share the good news of Jesus Christ and demonstrate from the pages of Scripture that He is who He claimed to be through the miracles and through the message. You are dealing with a person's sin-cursed and fallen heart and the truth will convict and the Holy Spirit will bring conviction. But what you should not expect is that every person is going to respond in repentance and faith. In fact, what you should expect is that some are going to respond very negatively. Now, we'll take a look at those two, uh, diff- uh, are those two negative responses this morning. First of all, there's conviction and confusion. Conviction and confusion. So Jesus sends the twelve out, verses 7 to 13, and in verse 14, we see it says, And King Herod heard of it. He heard about the twelve now going out and, do it, and preaching the same message and doing the same miracles. King Herod heard. This is actually Herod Antipas. We'll deal with who he is in a moment. King Herod hears about it. He hears about what? He hears about the twelve going out and preaching. He hears about Jesus preaching. He hears about the miracles and all the things that are being done. Why? Because his name had become well known. Jesus' name was so well known that now even in the palace, there in Galilee, in Caesarea, or in the fortress palace, where we're going to wind up here in a few verses, even in king's palaces, Jesus is being talked about. His name has become renowned, well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. Now, you say, well, wait a minute, John the Baptist is risen from the dead. When did he die? He didn't, we didn't say anything about that. You're right. Because Mark isn't giving you a history book. He isn't writing you a biography of the life, of, life and times of Jesus. He's laying out the case for Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of Man, the Son of God. When, when Jesus gets to the high point of His ministry, sends the disciples out, and they are replicating His ministry in His name, 
People are beginning now to say that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. What's that tell you? At this point, John has already been executed. And one of the things that people are concluding is that John the Baptist has risen from the dead. In fact, that's what they say. Uh, that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, there's an obvious, obvious uh, deficiency in this logic. This conclusion doesn't even make sense. Well, why? Well, number one, because they're contemporaries. Uh, according to John chapter 3, both Jesus and John were ministering at the same time down by the Jordan River, just separated by a couple of hours, okay? Both of them preaching, both of them baptizing people, both of them at the same time until John gets arrested, and that's when Jesus moves his ministry up to Galilee. John chapter 3 tells us that they are both contemporaries and both ministering at the same time. In addition to that, well, what do we know about the beginning of Jesus' ministry? What's the first thing he does before he does his first miracle, before he goes out and preaches his first message? He goes where? He goes to the Jordan River and gets baptized by whom? John the Baptist. He can't be John the Baptist risen from the dead. He's a different person. Doesn't even make sense. Well, what's that show you? The confusion of the logic of the people. There's got to be an explanation for this. It doesn't even have to make sense. You say, well, how can people believe stuff that doesn't even make sense? Dear friends and neighbors, do you not listen to any political stuff that's being said today? I don't think anybody says anything that makes sense anymore. There's maybe about 10% of the words that are stated that make even logical sense, much less whether or not they're true. And people believe it. You know, just yesterday, uh, my daughter was telling me, apparently there are, what did, what did she say, 105 pronouns now? I don't think the United States can afford to put any more pronouns on the any more nouns on the payroll. You know what the pronoun is, right? It's the same thing as a regular noun, except you pay them to work to do the job. That's a grammar a grammarian joke. You liked it though, didn't you, Donald? Okay. Listen. In any case, bottom line: lots of things that are absolutely ridiculous. People believe it doesn't have to make sense. It doesn't have to be true. It just has to satisfy uh, what I want to believe and I will accept it and go on with my life. Of all the cultures and all the societies and all of redemptive history, our culture and our society today ought to understand that because we have accepted as a culture <laughs> the, the ridiculous idea that there are more than two genders. Now, what are people concluding? Well, it must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. Well, that doesn't even make sense. You're right. But some people bought into that. Why? Because they had to make sense of it. They had to make sense of it. They couldn't accept that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the Son of God. They couldn't accept the truth of who He really is and what this really says. This is God at work through Him. This is the one that John the Baptist pointed to. They can't accept the truth, so they've got to come up with some new idea, and that's what they're going to believe. He's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And that's why he's doing all these miracles. Now, that's not the only suggestion. Notice in verse 15, it says, Others were saying he is Elijah. And still others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. 
Each of those others, by the way, is an others of the same kind. People just like the first group of people going with the, the ridiculous idea that it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. People just like that were saying, no, he has to be Elijah. Now, this one can make sense. Well, how do you know that? Well, because according to Malachi 4, uh, I won't make you turn there, but uh, in Malachi chapter 4, the Old Testament in, in the English Bible closes out with these words, Malachi 4.4. 4. Malachi, uh, speaking for God here, says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all of Israel. So this is 400 years before Jesus is born. This is the end of the Old Testament context. This is the, uh, among the last of the revelation that God gives to His people Israel before there's four centuries of silence and then Christ shows up. Remember the law of, my, of Moses, my servants, and all that I commanded him. Remember everything I've already told you. And behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. I will send you Elijah before I come to, to establish my kingdom and judge the living and the dead. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. You know what, from that point until the days of Christ, you know what the Old Testament, or you know what the Israelites were uh, waiting for on the basis of the testimony of the Old Testament? Elijah to show up. Now, you remember what Jesus said about John the Baptist? If you will accept it, John is that Elijah. When uh, Luke tells us in detail uh, about how the angel appeared to Elijah's, or excuse me, to John the Baptist's father in the temple, and uh, and then it, there's the prophecy right there in Luke chapter one uh, when John is born that he he will turn the it quotes that same passage he will turn the hearts of his people uh, uh, back to him etc. If you will accept it, this is the Elijah who will to come, who was is to come. You know what? They didn't accept it. You say, well, does that mean Elijah's still coming? Is he one of the two witnesses? Those are really good questions. I don't have a definitive answer for you. I can tell you that from Jesus' perspective, what he said very clearly is, if you will accept it, John is that Elijah. Well, they're concluding that Jesus is Elijah. At least makes sense. Others were saying, no, he's a prophet like one of the prophets of old. He's, he's not specifically any one of them, but he's like them. Who are the prophets of old that they're referring to? Moses, because of the miracles that he did and the, and the, the powerful, profound way that he spoke for God and acted for God. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, we were promised that a prophet like unto Moses is going to come. This explains to you why in John chapter 1, in the prologue there, there's all that discussion. Are you the prophet? Because God promised to send a prophet like unto Moses. One who speaks directly for God. One who sits down and speaks face to face with God. Elijah, Elisha, they did miracles. But none of the Old Testament prophets, including Moses, did miracles on, on any level like what Jesus did. Show me one place in the Old Testament where it says there were so many miracles being done uh, that I can't even record them all. 
One place. There isn't. And yet that's the way John 20 concludes. <laughs> Jesus did so many things, I couldn't write them all down. These, I just picked the main ones because they're the ones I think best point out who Jesus is so that you will believe. All these miracles Jesus did and the clear message that he's proclaiming, he's got to be from God. And everybody recognizes that because all the guesses they're coming up with is it's either got to be John the Baptist back from the dead uh, and everybody recognized he spoke for God uh, or it's got to be Elijah because that's what God promised he was going to send Elijah or it's got to be a prophet like one of the Old Testament prophets because that's the way, this has got to be from God. And yet, do you see everybody believing, everybody following, everybody repenting? No. You see them acknowledging the truth that there's enough evidence, there's enough truth in the proclamation and in the proof of the miracles to demonstrate that Jesus speaks for God, has been sent from God, and yet people still are not responding to him in repentance and faith. Oh, he's popular, he's prophetic, but he's not Lord. I want you to notice in verse 16, when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. You want to know why Herod bought into that most ridiculous of ideas? Because of his heart. Because he knew what he did was an offense to God, and this is God getting back at him. And you know what? Conviction of sin does that. Conviction of sin dominates the mind. Conviction of sin. Conviction, guilt, sorrow over what you've done leads you to draw even unreasonable conclusions. And that's what Herod did. Why does he draw that conclusion? Well, for this, I direct your attention to verses 17 to 29 where we're going to spend the rest of our time. And I'll show you here that, that uh, the, the second result of rejecting the gospel is not just re, uh, conviction and confusion, but conviction and condemnation. I want you to see that that conviction that leads Herod to make that most confused and ridiculous of conclusions about who Jesus is, comes about as a result of the condemnation that he feels and the condemnation that he is eternally due for the atrocities that he committed against God. Verse 17. We have the explanation of why Herod is absolutely convinced that he's John the Baptist back from the dead. Because Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Notice the expression in verse 18 where it says, for John had been saying to Herod. That's a continuous or a recurrent idea in the Greek. In other words, John kept saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And you say, well, what is he talking about? Well, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put a pin in this right now, and we're going to take a step back, and I'm going to fill out a little bit of history for you. I, I need you to pay attention and take notes, because some of this is really confusing, and it's all going to be on the test, just so you know, Reuben. Be, be alert and paying attention. 
Make sure you elbow him when he starts to nod off and check his notes for him. All right. Herod. Herod is probably one of the most complex subjects in the whole New Testament. Why? Because Herod is Herod, but it's also Herod. Okay? So let me explain that. Herod himself had sent and arrest, had John arrested and bound in prison on, on account of Herodias. The first Herod that we meet in the New Testament is Herod the Great. He died uh, somewhere between 3 and 5 B.C., depending on which calendar you use. Okay? Herod the Great was a client king of Rome. Now, I don't want to go through all of his life and the history of Herod the Great, Uh, I will just say that it was actually Augustus, Caesar Augustus, when he came to power uh, because of the exceptional way that Herod the Great conducted himself and responded, even being uh, uh, loyal to Mark Antony during all of that, uh, uh, he committed himself to Augustus, and Augustus rewarded him by putting him in charge of the whole land of Israel as a client king. Now, that was always uh, in the craw of the people of Israel because he was Edomian. Now, you maybe don't know what that means, but that means that he was from Edom. He was a descendant of Esau. If you're familiar with Genesis, you have the two sons, Jacob and Esau, right? Well, that a descendant of Esau would be appointed by Rome as king over Uh, the Israelites, all the descendants of Jacob who were chosen by God and Esau sold his birthright, all of that bit. So all that history factors into this. Herod was a terrible, wicked guy. Herod the Great is the one that you read about in Matthew's Gospel who sent his soldiers to kill all the babies, all the male babies, two years old and and younger in, in Bethlehem because he didn't want any possibility of somebody, having a, uh, with, of somebody with a rightful claim to David's throne to exist because he wanted to be king and he wanted to make sure that his heirs carried on his legacy as king over Israel. Now, when he got close to dying, when he got near his deathbed, he really, he was not only super wicked and evil, he went a little, what's the technical term, cuckoo? Crazy? Wacko? What is it? What is it that you call Chuck? Loco? Is that the right one? Did I get it right? El Pollo Loco, right? So that's what he went. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, he was getting close to death, so he kept rewriting his will. He kept, he kept making changes to it because he feared some of his sons. So, you know, you're in favor now, and then wait. That son, he's, he's trying, now that I've told him he's the one that's going to inherit the kingdom, oh, now he's going to make a play and get me out and just take over right away. So he had him executed. So he went through a couple of his, his uh, better sons that way. When he got right to the end of his life, he realized that when he died, everybody was going to be happy. So in order to prevent anybody from throwing a party, do you know what he did? He had a couple of hundred of the most wealthy and well-to-do people in Jerusalem gathered together and ordered that on the day that he died, they all be executed so that there would be mourning in Israel when he died. That's this guy. Okay? Well, why are you telling me about him? Well, because the Herod that we read about here in Mark 6 is a chip off the old block. 
the Herod that we read here is not Herod the Great. This is Herod Antipas. Uh, And uh, you want to pay attention to these because when Herod died, Rome divided his kingdom up into three parts. The northern territory that is above Galilee, uh, Iteria, and uh, I forget what the other territory, Trachonitis, I think it is. Um, When Herod the Great died, Herod Philip was appointed as the tetrarch, the ruler of a portion of a kingdom. That's what a tetrarch means, a a, a partial ruler of the kingdom. Herod Philip, one of Herod the Great's sons, was placed in charge of that northern territory. The southern territory, and by the way, uh, when later on Philip is replaced by, if I remember right... um, His nephew, yeah, eventually he gets succeeded by his nephew, Herod Agrippa, that we meet in the book of Acts. That's who Paul stands before, all right? So that's all the way up there in the most northern area above Galilee. Now you go all the way to the southern part of Israel, and that's Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Herod Archelaus is assigned that territory. You say, well, why don't we read about him in the Bible? Well, because he was so inept and so incompetent as a leader by 6 AD, okay, that, which is uh, eight years, maybe, maybe nine years after his dad died. So eight or nine years of his ruling uh, the, the Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And his ineptitude has forced Rome to uh, depose him. They just threw him out and they replaced him with a Roman military governor. Incidentally, that is exactly why Jesus in his trial is taken before Pontius Pilate, the procurator, the Roman official military governor, because Archelaus couldn't handle the job. Now you get that intermediate, that middle region, okay? So you got uh, uh, Herod Philip up north, you got Pilate down south started with Archelaus and then got replaced by uh, uh, procurators. And then in the middle territory, Galilee and Perea. Perea, remember when Jesus went to the other side and he met the demoniac? That whole area? Okay, that is under Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas, when he gets appointed ruler there, if you look on a map, you will notice directly to the east is the Arabian kingdom of Nabatea. So... Like any good ruler in those days, Herod Antipas just got appointed as the tetrarch on Rome's behalf, the ruler of that center kingdom of Galilee and Perea, and his neighbor to the east is Nabatea, so he marries the Nabatean king's daughter. And after he does that, he heads off to Rome, takes his wife with him. When he gets to Rome, guess what happens? He meets Herodias. She's kind of cute. She's into power. Only one problem. She's married to his brother, Philip. And and for those of you scoring at home, this is not the brother Philip that is Herod of the northern area. This is another Herod Philip. And I will expect you to know the difference on the test. Uh, So he meets his 
other brother Philip, and her, his wife, Herodias. Now, he likes her a lot, and she likes him a lot. Guess why she likes him? Because he's a ruler. And he locally has the... Now, in Rome's eyes, he has the title Tetrarch. In the people's eyes, he has the title King. And so she gets to be what? Queen. Oh, doesn't that sound cool? Queen Herodias sounds so much better than wife of Philip Herodias. So, he divorces his wife. His wife runs home to dad. Herodias divorces her husband. You know the only reason she's able to pull it off is because she's in Rome. And women in Rome, under certain circumstances, especially if you have political clout, had the authority and the ability legally to divorce your husband. So she divorces her husband, Philip. He dismisses his wife, and they get married. Now, they're one big happy family. Oh, by the way, she had a daughter named Salome, according to Josephus, by Philip beforehand. So now they're one big happy family, and they come back to Galilee and Perea to rule as king and queen. It's a match made in, well, let's just say they're perfect for each other and leave it at that. How's that? So they get back. John the Baptist starts his ministry. Guess what John the Baptist was? He was not subtle. I can tell you that. Okay? He was faithful. He was bold. He was clear. He spoke the truth. And that's what we read in, in verses 17 and 18. John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful, referring to the Mosaic law. It is unbiblical. It is a sin for you to have your brother's wife. You need to repent. You need to return to your wife. By the way, just as a footnote, a historical footnote here, it may interest you to know that the consequences of those evil acts were felt for the rest of their lives. Uh, when the Nabataean king's daughter got home, you can imagine the king wasn't very happy, and so they invaded. And if it weren't for the Romans sending legions to defend uh, Herod Antipas, uh, the Nabataeans would have taken the territory. Wars happened over this. That's what sin does. Well, Herodias paid quite a cost and so did Herod, in order to facilitate getting what they want. Him getting the woman that he wanted. Her getting the position that she wanted. So when this prophet John shows up and keeps calling for repentance, keeps pointing out their sin, calling their marriage a violation of the law of God, you can imagine that Herodias didn't take it very well. And so Herod himself, notice it says Herod himself there in verse 17. That means he personally gave the order. It, wasn't, it didn't just happen under his authority and he's responsible for it because one of his officials did it. He personally gave the order to have John arrested. And he had him bound in prison on account of Herodias, meaning uh, not just on account of the fact that he took her as his wife, but due to her prompting and provocation... He arrested him and bound him in prison. 
And when you put the biblical accounts together across the Gospels, as well as looking at the confirmation from Josephus as far as the dating goes, John is in prison for about a year because he kept calling uh, Herod to repentance. Now that brings us to verse 19. Herodias had a grudge against him. And as a footnote here, uh, your Bible may say had a quarrel against him. Uh, neither one of those words are really strong enough to, to convey the idea of the Greek. It, the, the sense of a grudge means an extremely hostile attitude towards somebody that is just not going to go away. We're talking Hatfields and McCoys. Anybody, is that a valid uh, illustration for anybody still today? Just you old people like me. Okay, for you young generations, okay, this is, uh, this is what? Angels Dodgers, like in the extreme, Cubs White Sox, or Cubs Cardinals maybe. Okay, there we go. I got two of you, one on each side of the fence. But, but you're, not, you're not into killing each other, are you? Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> okay. So... So Dallas and Washington football time, terms used to be for me, you know, Michigan, Ohio State. But even though, even though we're on opposite sides of reality together there and, and real rivals, there's still, no, there's still no gunshots, right? At least as far as I know, your dad isn't coming out to shoot me. Uh, well, you guys won last year, so I'm safe. But uh, anyways, the point is, this is way beyond a grudge. This is way beyond rival. This is absolute disdain and hatred. And you, you see how strong it is. She had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. That's how strong. She's queen and she just wants to order his execution. Nobody should be allowed to talk that way about us, about you, about me. We should kill him. Execute him. Now that may seem all over the top to you, but I think it's important to recognize that's the level of authority that rulers in those days had. But notice that she couldn't do so. Why? Because Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. Herod prevented it. That's why he had him locked up in prison. He didn't arrest him and have him executed for speaking against him and the queen. He had him arrested and locked away in the fortress of Machaerus for a year to keep him away from her. Why? Well, in the parallel passage in Matthew, it tells us that Herod also was afraid of the people because everybody recognized John was a prophet. But as Mark tells us, he also was personally afraid to do it because he knew John was a righteous man and a holy man. Well, what's that mean? He knew John not only talked the talk and spoke for God, but he walked the walk and lived for God. He was a righteous man, meaning he lived an upright life in the sight of God, and a holy man, meaning he lived a life totally devoted to God. He recognized that he was one who was fully committed to God and spoke rightly for God. And so he kept him safe. Which is really funny, the, way, the only way to keep him safe is to keep him locked up. Again, notice the confusion, notice the stupidity that is associated with the way an unrepentant heart works. Notice at the end of verse 20, it even says, And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. 
little footnote here. If you have the King James in the middle there of the end of that phrase, the second half, verse 20, it says, uh, when he heard him, he did many things, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Uh, that's based on a, on a poor um, a text base. Uh, and frankly, it doesn't even make sense in the context. Uh, when he heard him, he was very perplexed is what the text actually says. And what it means is he was confused. That, that sense of uh, being very compl- uh, perplexed means shaken to the core, in a confused state of mind, at a loss as to what to say or to do. And he used to enjoy listening to him. Tells you that he used to go back and sit down and, and have conversations with John. When he heard him, he enjoyed listening to him. But the result of these conversations was that he was very perplexed, very confused. It doesn't, it, it's not saying he did many things because uh, he's locked up. He's not doing anything. And it doesn't mean that, that Herod did many things because Herod's in there sitting down listening to him. Herod was perplexed, confused, blown away, had no idea what to do. He enjoyed listening to him. You want to know why he enjoyed listening to him? The same reason that anybody that is in a position of authority that is surrounded by people that will always tell you what you want to hear enjoy finally meeting someone of integrity who will just tell them the truth, who will just tell you what you really think. Oh, you can, you can find enemies that will point out all the bad stuff and attack you because they hate you. And you can, you can multiply friends when you're flipping the bill for everything to get people to say what you want to hear. But to actually find somebody of integrity that will just tell you the truth and not just attack you, but, but on the basis of the truth, speak the truth for God and just call you to repentance. Herod enjoyed listening to John because it was probably the only person on the planet that actually told him the truth every time. But he was perplexed. He was confused. He didn't know what to do with what he was hearing because what John kept telling him to do, we saw back in, the, in verse 18, John kept saying, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. You, you, you need to repent. And you want to know why he's confused, why he's perplexed, why, why he doesn't know what to do? Because the one thing that John is telling him to do, he knows is true, but it's the one thing he doesn't want to do and is not willing to do, and so he's stuck. He's stuck. Verse 21, a strategic day came. Uh, your Bible may say a convenient day or a timely day or something along that lo- those lines. That's all it means. The Greek just means a timely day, an opportune time. An opportune time came when Herod on his birthday, some writers have argued the birthday is not actually his his the day he was born, but the day that he was appointed uh, to that position of authority can go either way. I think a birthday fits better because that's, the, ant- uh, that's the, the definition of the term. Uh, but rulers celebrated sometimes the birth of their reign. In any case, it's a celebration day that Herod is throwing a party in honor of Herod. And it proves to be an opportune Timely, convenient, or strategic day for Herodias. Because Herod, on his birthday, gives a banquet, gives a feast, has a party. 
for his lords, military commanders, and leading men. The lords are the high-ranking, literally the highest-ranking officials in his administration, his political administration. Military commanders is just that, the highest-ranking officers in his army. And the leading men of Galilee means the high-ranking muckety-mucks, the rich and famous of, ta- of Galilee. All the people of property, all the people that are a part of the in-crowd, all the people of wealth, all of his political supporters. So he invites them all. You notice that this is a male party. He invites his lords, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in. Now, footnote. Remember when we talked about Herodias having been previously married? This is the daughter from that previous marriage. And depending on what calendar you follow, she's probably 16 or 17 years old. So she's a young lady. The beginnings of womanhood. But she's not a mature woman yet. And she comes in. And she dances. Now, what kind of a dance do you think that she puts on when you got a a banquet celebration that a king is having for himself that he invites all of his highest ranking officials and all the most wealthy people that he knows as some great big bash. These kinds of bashes would have involved a great deal of intoxication and partying and, and a whole bit. And now in comes Salome, Herodias' daughter. The daughter of Herodias herself. That means Herodias personally sent her daughter in to do this. What kind of a mom do you have to be to get your daughter to do a provocative, uh, uh, many of the commentators say it is like a strip tease or a belly dance kind of a thing? What kind of a mom you have to be to use your daughter to do this to facilitate your political ends? That's Herodias. As a, as a side note here, I mean, I know this isn't a Father's Day message, but if you think about it, even if you set aside all the divorce and all the immorality associated with the marriage to begin with, this is Herodias' daughter. You know what that makes this girl to Herod? His stepdaughter shows you the depravity. Well, the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, and she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. She put on a show, and they all celebrated, and they all loved it. And the king said to the girl, and by the way, you should underline that word girl, because it stresses the fact that this is, this is not... Uh, an older woman at all. This is a girl. And she's probably 17. And he says to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Amazing, amazing, bold. Ask me for anything you can have it. What would lead him to even begin to say that? He's drunk. He's aroused. He's full of himself, and he's foolish. Think about how he fell for her mom to begin with because she was attractive. And he was willing to even go through a war and dismiss his wife in order to get her mom. 
It's interesting to me that if you read Esther chapter 1, that when King Ahasuerus wanted his wife to come in, Queen Vashti, to come in and do a dance like this for his officials, she said no. So he, his officials compelled him to divorce her. You know what you probably don't realize is that that would have been a nude dance just like this. The, people want to talk about how noble Esther is. You want to know the most noble woman in the book of Esther? It's Vashti who wouldn't do a strip tease for her husband's friends. I digress. But I think it just sets things in that ancient context. I don't think we realize how dark the world was. I think one of the things that's characteristic of us today, seeing the moral decline in our society, which is real, we see the moral decline in our society and think this is as bad as it's ever been. We are still, to this day, so blessed to be living in the United States of America with our laws and our freedoms and our liberties, our securities. We are still blessed beyond imagination even beyond, I think, most, if not everybody else, on the world today, on the planet today, much less back in ancient times when rulers were able to live on this level of debauchery. This young lady comes in, and she does the dance, and it so impresses Herod, and it so impresses all of his friends, and in a moment of weakness and stupidity, he stands up and says... Ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. Verse 23 even says, He swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. Matthew tells us he made a number of oaths. And Mark's going to echo that oaths, meaning this is, this is an abbreviated account of how, how open he was about saying, Ask anything you want. And, and by the way, Several of the commentators point out the, the ridiculousness of verse 23. He's making a promise he couldn't keep. In verse 23, when he swore to her, he went, put himself under oath saying, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. It isn't his kingdom. He can't just give half of it away to her and put her in charge. Rome is in charge and they appointed him. If he wants to give up half of it, he needs to tell Rome and they decide who takes the other half. Just shows you his inebriated state, his foolishness, his, his stupidity. Now, this is what sin does it leads to greater and greater foolishness. Sinful choices and sinful actions lead to more sinful choices and more sinful actions, and it just turns into a spiral a downward spiral from which there is no escape but repentance, complete and total repentance. But that is far from this account. Verse 24. She went out and said to his, her mother, what shall I ask for? What's that tell you? She goes to her mom and says, what do I ask for? That tells you that she has no idea what her mom's plan really was. She was just doing it because her mom asked her. All she wants to do is please her mom. Okay, he's offered me anything I want. What do I want? What do I ask for? Notice what mom says. The head of John the Baptist this is what her plan has been the whole time. She's even willing to use her daughter to entice her husband in order to get the upper hand so she can see John the Baptist dead. That's the kind of hatred that 
some will have toward those who faithfully preach the truth. You shouldn't be surprised by it. Verse 25, immediately, there's our word. That's the word that occurs in Mark more than any other word, immediately. At once, at that very moment, she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now, that may seem barbaric and far-fetched, etc., but I did a little reading this week. Uh, some of you that maybe know a little bit about Roman history, you know, when Julius Caesar was murdered, Mark Antony took over and started to, to do some extreme measures to bring everything under control. Cicero was a Roman politician of note, and he spoke very directly against the abuses of power that Antony uh, applied. Well, that didn't make Mark Antony's wife at the time very happy. If I remember, her name was Fluvia. Uh, she was very unhappy, had a lot of political clout. She wound up getting Cicero's head sent to her on a platter. And we're told that, that uh, historians tell us that once she got the head, she pulled out his tongue and started, she pulled one of the golden pins, the needles, like, kind of like a knitting needle that they, you hold the bun of your hair up with and started stabbing the tongue. Ha, I got gotcha. you. Okay, that kind of debauchery, that kind of behavior was common. Maybe it shocks you. Hopefully it shocks you. That's common historical behavior. She wants the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Why? Because it's a trophy. Verse 26. Although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. You see that little phrase, very sorry? That word only occurs twice in the Gospel of Mark. It's a very rare word in the Bible. It only occurs twice in the Gospel of Mark. Once here, referring to Herod, being very sorry. And once in Mark 14, referring to Jesus, with his soul greatly distressed, facing the cross. It's the idea of of being so overwhelmed and distressed between two choices And neither one do you want to choose. He was very sorry, not wanting to to give in here, but because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Better to look good in the sight of his fellow rulers and make his wife, wife happy than offend God. So immediately the king sent an executioner, verse 27, and commanded him to bring back his head. So he went and had him beheaded in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. And that's basically the end of the account. Notice immediately is our word again. Immediately is taken care of. You want to know why Herod is convinced that it's John the Baptist back from the dead? Because Herod is overwhelmed with guilt and conviction because he knew what he did was an offense against God. And this is John back from the dead. You know, it's a pretty sad story, wouldn't you agree? It seems like it has a pretty unhappy ending, wouldn't you agree? The bad guys win. Herodias gets her way. Now, I could tell you about how their kingdom ultimately falls apart and they die in Rome uh, as forgotten nobodies. I could tell you that, but that's 
that's, there's no happiness, there's no satisfaction there. Their whole lives, their whole reign is characterized by turmoil and sin and sorrow that they bring upon themselves. Can you imagine what it would have been like to live the rest of your life with that sense in your heart of shame and guilt for having executed a spokesman for God? So much so that you're afraid it's, that Jesus is John back from the dead? But ultimately, that's not the end of the story. None of this is the end of the story. Herodias has won for now. But one day, she, Herod, and even her daughter will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and they will answer for this crime. They will answer for their immorality. They will answer for their debauchery. They will answer for it all just like everyone else will. If you think about the accumulation of guilt, not just that surrounds, or guilt that just surrounds Herod, it's frightening. He's not just accountable for murdering John, he's also accountable for sending away his first wife, for taking his brother's wife, for neglecting the many warnings and admonitions that God gave him through John the whole year he was in prison. And that's the real story here. All John did was call him to repent. But sin does what it does, and it not only rejects the warnings, it winds up multiplying its offenses, securing all the more wrath for itself in the end. There will be an abundance of condemnation for Salome, who allowed herself to be used by her mother, and for her participation in the execution of John the Baptist. You know, being sent by your mom into Dan, she could have said no, but she said yes. But that's not the worst of it. When she comes back and says, Mom, what do I ask for? Ask for the head of John the Baptist. And she went and said, I want the head of John the Baptist right now as a trophy for my mom. Herodias involved her daughter in that. Listen, nobody gets away with any sin ever. It may look like it in this life, but nobody gets away with any sin ever. I remember it being a big deal watching the trials of O.J. Simpson play out. Remember that? Oh, he got away with murder or whatever else. You know, his life since then has been miserable. I can't imagine he he's living a, has lived a life worth living. But none of it matters because ultimately he's going to answer for everything if he did it. Period. Even your sins will not go unpunished. That's the whole point of the cross. All of my sins were paid in full by Jesus Christ when he laid down his life for me at the cross. Now, from this context, if you're a spokesman for God, you should never be surprised if people respond antagonistically or in a confused way to the message of the gospel that you preach. The truth brings conviction, but conviction does not always result in repentance. In fact, the majority of the time it results in confusion, coming up with ideas to explain it away and then push it aside, or conviction that ultimately leads you to do worse things that that increase the amount of condemnation you will face. So nature of life and ministry as a Christian in a sin-cursed and fallen world. It's the very thing that Jesus promised us in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when men persecute you and revile you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when they do. Why? Because your reward in heaven is great. Because that's the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And you know who the prophets who were before us? It's not just the Old Testament prophets. It's John the Baptist. It's the apostles. 
It's the previous generations of Christians uh, upon whose testimony and ministry we stand today. And it's the life and ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ himself. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You live for God, you speak for God, you point to God, and you will be persecuted just like God himself was when he was here. This whole text winds up being a foreshadowing of exactly what's going to happen to Jesus. And exactly what's going to happen to the apostles. And exactly what is in store for all of us to some extent. But there's one final note. I want you to see the honor that followed John's death that was given by true believers. Verse 29, when his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Notice it says his body because his head's gone. But they still showed honor. To John and buried his body because his fellow believers his fellow disciples his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ we still have the ability to show honor to each other and respect and love and appreciation to each other and even in life's darkest hours that's what Christianity looks like it lives for God it speaks for God it points to God and it suffers for God. Remember the way the disciples responded in the book of Acts when they were beaten the first time for preaching Christ? They went away rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Jesus Christ. I think many of us need that reminder that we live in a sin-cursed fallen world not to hold our tongue and get along with everybody. We live in a sin-cursed and fallen world to live a life in front of a lost world and verbally speak about Christ and point people to Him and call people to repentance. Say, but then people may not like me. They did not like Jesus either. They did not like John the Baptist. You shouldn't be surprised. But that's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Let's pray. Lord in heaven.